Well, good morning, CCB. Honk if you can hear me in your radio. <laughs> Glad to know you guys can hear me. You know that's the most pen- you know that's the most charismatic our church has ever been, which is fitting because this morning is a Pentecost Sunday. Um, but it's so grateful to be gathered together in person. It's so fun to see you all. Just a couple quick things. Uh, as we gather in our cars, um, at the end of the service, rows are going to be dismissed by, uh, by rows. Our attendants will come and dismiss you, so please be patient after the service is over and wait for them. Also, um, with the new order from the governor, we can actually have about 100 people outdoors, and so uh, stay inside if you want, but if people need to get out of their cars, uh, you can. But if you think there's about 100 people, just stay in your car, or just stay in your car anyways, because you won't be able to hear me if you're out of your car. So... All that to say is it's great to be with you guys this morning as we gather on Pentecost Sunday. You know, it's the day uh, in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit comes and fills his church. Um, And as the Holy Spirit comes and fills his church, Peter stands and he preaches to the crowds gathered. And thousands of people come to faith and are baptized. It's this amazing growth of the early church. And that same Holy Spirit is filling us this morning as we gather in our cars in this kind of weird and awkward way. and it's uniting us and sustaining us uh, as we are a light to the world. And so our call to worship is going to come from that and, and uh, sermon from Peter in Acts 2. So I want you to hear this now as Christ himself calls us into worship by the power of his spirit. From Acts 2. God will pour out the spirit on all flesh and our daughters and sons shall prophesy. Our old ones shall dream dreams and our young ones shall see visions. And all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Come, let us call upon the name of the Lord. Pray with me. Merciful Father, we are so thankful for this opportunity to gather together as your people. In the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit of God that unifies us. As we gather this morning, I pray that you would encourage our hearts that you would satisfy our souls, and that you would help us to be a light to the world. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Let us uh, lift our voices together. And this is a great encouragement to sing loudly, because I want to hear those voices. So we're going to sing a well-known song that you should know, Come Thou Fount. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me so melodious sonnet, sung by fame above. I praise the mountain fixed upon it, a mount of God's unchanging love. Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. And I hope by thy good pleasure, 
safely to arrive at home. Jesus saw me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, by my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, here's my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Amen. We're going to enter now into a time of confession, and we're going to use a simple prayer from Psalm 139 that I'm going to read for us. Um, and this is a prayer that invites the Holy Spirit to expose us, exposing our sins to him so that we can experience his healing and his grace. So hear this word now from Psalm 139, and let this lead us into a time of confession this morning. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Take a moment now to silently confess your sins before the Lord. Lord, in your infinite mercy, we ask that you would hear our prayers and that you would indeed forgive our sins. Amen. Amen. Uh, friends, uh, lift up your eyes and hear these beautiful words from Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Friends, this is amazing news that if you have confessed your sins, you are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are made clean. And this is a sure thing because it is not of your doing, but it is the doing of God in heaven who sent his son to this earth to die on your behalf. And what Christ does, he does not fail. He has accomplished this for you. So the peace of Christ be with you. And you can respond with a honk of your horn as the peace of Christ coming back to me. Amen. Hello, Christ Church. So good to be with you all. I'm so thank you for coming out in this strange uh, way to be together, but 
I'm so happy to be with our church family. And um, so we, uh, this morning, are going to just continue our study through the, the book of James. And uh, so if you have a Bible, you can open to James uh, chapter 1. And um, and I appreciate all of you have been sending in uh, pictures of your notes so we can stay connected. I can't show you pictures this week. But, um, but we're going to look at James chapter 1 and... Um, Starting in, in, in verse 5, uh, let's see here. And you got, you'll have to bear with me. The wind is blowing my notes all over the place. So, uh, so here we go. We're in James chapter 1, uh, verses uh, 5 to 12. Hear the word of the Lord. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we praise you that we are one body. And uh, though we are grateful that you minister to us, you hear our prayers as we've been scattered these past months. We are so grateful for a time to be in one place together. Um, we do pray for those who couldn't join us this morning, that your spirit would continue to minister to them and attend to them. But Lord, we also pray that you would bring us back together as a church, as one body soon. We'd be meeting in, in our church home and that we would be able to hug one another and talk with one another and hear one another sing. And in the meantime, Lord, we are hungry for your, your gospel and your truth. So would you feed us now? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are uh, continuing our study through uh, the book of James this morning. And our, our topic is uh, doubt. And uh, you see what uh, James says there in verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. And I think uh, doubt is a, such an important topic for us in our culture. Uh, it's, of course, Im important to talk about because many of us struggle with doubts. I know many of you struggle with doubts. Maybe you are in the midst of this pandemic, have many doubts that you're, you're facing. Uh, and the Bible is kind to those who doubt. You know, Jesus was patient with doubting Thomas. And 
And even the, the man who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus was kind to him. He had a son who was possessed by a demon, and, and, he, uh, and he freed that son. And, and Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. So the church should have mercy on those who doubt. Um, and one thing that we often say in our churches is, is that we don't want people to hide their doubts. Uh, we want a gentle culture that allows people to say, you know, this is a hard part of the Bible for me to believe, and I'm, I, I don't know what to think about that. And it's okay to express your doubts. But it's crucial that we include with our gentle culture as a church a clarity that doubt is never considered a good thing in the Bible. Uh, Jesus often rebukes his disciples for being of little faith. And James is blunt in this passage about doubt. He says, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And right now, you know, many uh, American evangelical Christians uh, have played more recently with doubt. And they say, well, you know, being doubting God is authentic and it's genuine and it's honest. And so it's like we celebrate people doubting God. The Bible does not view doubt that way. And so today we're going to learn uh, from James about doubt, and we're going to do that by answering uh, three simple questions. What is doubt? Where does it come from? And what is its cure? Three uh, simple questions this morning. What is doubt? Where does it come from? And what is its cure? And I'll spend most of my time on the first point and then kind of answer the, the second two a little more briefly. So three questions for us this morning. The first is this. What is doubt? Now, uh, before I answer that, it's important for us uh, to just have a, a brief history of doubt in our culture. Our culture has been steeped with the idea for literally 400 years that doubt is the source of true knowledge. Uh, that was the assumption of the Enlightenment in the 17th to 18th centuries, that, that uh, anything that could not be verified through reason or the scientific method should be questioned and regarded with sus suspicion. And we became suspicious of religion and the Bible and the church. We became suspicious of morality itself. And suspicion became the guiding principle for knowledge. That's how you came to know things was by being suspicious. So modern people have uh, basically thought that you look at all the achievements of science. You look at all the power. You know, we just had a rocket that yesterday went into space. And we say, wow, science is so powerful. This proves that our doubting was justified. Through doubt, we've left off the dark ages of ignorance and our eyes have been opened. And that is why for... Uh, that's why many people in the modern world see doubt as a noble or a courageous thing to be doubting. Well, the irony is that European man doubted the church and made all these scientific discoveries. But what did the European man do with his newfound powers? Well, for those centuries, they colonized the world, developed a massive slave trade, oppressed indigenous peoples, and then in the 20th century, we had two devastating world wars that took all the powers of technology and massive killing. Doubt made us feel powerful, but it did not make us good. Doubt made us powerful, but not good. And in fact, postmodern thinkers have embraced an even more radical form of doubt. 
They have doubted the arrogance of modernity and its claims to certain knowledge through science and reason. And they said, basically, isn't science and reason just another form of religion? You know, the church said no one can doubt the church. Now scientists say no one can doubt a scientist. So now we have arrived in an era where we doubt everything. We are suspicious of religion, the church, politics, any institution with power. We're suspicious of men, of families. We're suspicious of older generations that we think are, are outdated. And we are maybe suspicious above all of God. And the only thing we trust is me, my own heart, my own passions. And above all, uh, we say above all, I must trust, be true to myself. I must follow my passion and my sexual desires wherever they lead me. I must self-actualize and create my own reality. And so our suspicion has seen through everything until I am the only thing left to be trusted. Can we all sense where that's leading? What happens when our self finally fails us? And we've seen through everything, including ourselves. And we find ultimately there is nothing that can be trusted. C.S. Lewis in his final paragraph of The Abolition of Man put it this way. But you cannot go on explaining away forever. That means, you, know, you cannot go on doubting forever. You will find that you've explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. What Lewis is saying is that doubt cannot ultimately lead to knowledge. Ultimately, it can only lead to blindness and despair, a life in a world that has no meaning. And one of the hallmarks of both modern and postmodern culture is that doubt has become a noble, a courageous, and a heroic thing. We say things like, wow, that person's being so honest. They're so raw. They're so authentic. But we have lost the biblical warning that the heart is deceitful above all things. And so let me come back to the first question. What then is doubt? And James tells us in verse 7, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so the two ways that James answers the questions, what is doubt, is he says doubt is double-minded, and doubt is unstable. We'll talk briefly about each of those. So first, doubt is double-minded. Being double-minded means having divided loves, a divided heart, not trusting God with your whole heart, being wholly devoted to him. Uh, and I think that we should understand that trusting God is a deeply personal thing. He's not just an intellectual idea like science or something like that. He's a person. And so trusting him is like trusting a person. And, you know, you think about if, uh, if one day the police came to my house and arrested my wife and said, your wife has murdered someone. The evidence is totally against her. It's irrefutable. And she goes to trial. And all the evidence seems to be against her that she's a murderer. Do you think I should believe that she's a murderer? Is that foolish of me to say, no, I trust my wife. I know her. I know she's not a murderer. If she said she's not a murderer, it's because I know her personally. That's how it is with God. We're not going to be able to come up with every intellectual argument about why 
you know, every doubt about God can be proven, it's because we know him. He's been faithful to us, and we trust and we love him, and so we are wholly devoted to him through many trials and doubts that we'll face in this life. Um, and you might say, that's a lot to be wholly devoted to God, to totally trust him no matter what. But what else are you going to trust in? You have to trust ultimately in something. And James says, anything else you, you uh, trust in will leave you tossed around like the waves, including your own heart. Can you imagine making your own heart, just think of your emotional life and your intellectual life, making that the rock on which you build your life? Now, let me clarify one thing. I'm not saying your heart and your emotions and feelings don't matter. They matter greatly to God. And one of the great promises of the gospel is that the Holy Spirit would be poured into our hearts to teach us to trust God. He's not just trampling on our hearts and saying your heart is just a deceitful piece of trash and who cares about it. God doesn't do that. He loves our hearts. He wants our hearts to love him. Not at all. But when doubt trusts in our hearts instead of God, we find a second answer to the question, what is doubt? It's not only being double-minded. We have divided loves. We don't have God as the rock on which our trust is. But a second thing is that doubt is unstable. And, you know, there's a huge movement that I mentioned in the evangelical church called the deconstruction movement in the evangelical world where many people have grown up in the church and they're starting to question all these things that they, that they believed in from their childhood. And initially, they have all these discoveries, and it feels euphoric to be like, wow, I feel free. It was so hard being a Christian. And now um, I finally feel free. And actually, some of you know Rhett and Link. They're the podcasters, the YouTubers, who've been telling their story about they grew up in the Reformed Evangelical Church. And, you know, they learned about Darwinism and how the Bible is written. They said, we're just, you know, we're just being honest with our doubts facing hard questions, and now they've, they've left uh, the faith. And, and at the end of it, it's quite amazing. They say, you know, we don't really know what we believe now. They're kind of following every new fad, trying out every new fad. That's a wind, a wave that's being tossed about to and fro. And what James is saying is that doubt will ultimately make you unstable. And so who really has a happier life? You think of the man who's constantly chasing after new women, has a new woman, maybe every year or every month. Is he happier or is the man who devotes himself to one woman for a lifetime and goes through the hard work of loving one woman for a lifetime? Who's happier? We all know that second man is happier. That's true with us as well. There is a sanity and stability to trusting God exclusively with your whole heart. And so, first question, what is doubt? Well, it's a massive part of our cultural heritage, but it is double-minded and unstable and will ultimately lead to blindness and despair. And so we should be warned about doubt. But that leads to a second question. Where does it come from? And there are two interesting sources of doubt that James warns us about in this passage. The first is doubt comes from shame. Doubt comes from shame. You see, immediately after the mention of doubt, it says in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the word there for lowly is a, a humble brother. And it could mean a, a poor person, economically shamed by their, their poverty. But I think it's broader than this. It's the person who's been humiliated or shamed by their life circumstances. And it seems to me that James is saying the lowly brother will be susceptible to doubt. If you find yourself in a place where life is beating you up, you are vulnerable to doubt. 
Because we're all born with hearts that are distrustful of God. And then people hurt us, and people humiliate us, and people let us down, and life does not go as we expect, and we interpret all of these hardships that cause us shame as evidence that God really doesn't love us. And the way we deal with shame is by hardening ourselves against him. I will not let God or anyone else let me down like that again. And I love what James says to those who are beaten down and who are ashamed. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. He says, take pride in who you are in Christ if you are ashamed. You're a chosen, beloved child of God with eternal life. You are a joint heir with Christ and will reign with him in the age to come. You have the very ear of the high king of heaven. He listens to your prayers. And, you know, the Bible has such mercy for people who have been humiliated and shamed. That word for lowly there, Jesus says it about himself. Come to me, for I'm lowly and gentle of heart. I'll give you rest for your souls. That's, that's who Jesus identifies with. Or, or the way Isaiah says about Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Jesus knows that shame and humiliation can crush us. And I think we have to know that about each other. That the shame that we all carry into the church, we, we need to see in one another that that can cause our brothers and sisters to doubt. And so we need to exalt one another. The shame brother, exalt him. Like, I know who you are. I celebrate who you are in Christ. So James says on the one hand, you know, where does doubt come from? Doubt comes from shame. Second answer, kind of the opposite, is that doubt comes from wealth. Verse 9 again. Let the lowly brother exult in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You know, these two together, the shame and the wealth, this is a great summary of what Jesus came to do. He came to humble the proud and to raise up the lowly. And just as shame can lead to doubt, so can wealth and success and abundance. The shame person's heart is not wholly given to God because he fears that God won't give him anything. But the wealthy person's heart is not wholly given to God because he doesn't think he needs God to give him anything. And we have incredible wealth in our culture. This is a huge temptation for us to doubt. And actually, you know, those podcasters, Rhett and Link, they, they talk about as they tell their whole story. They say, you know, I know some of you who are listening to this will say, it's because we became famous and we moved to California. That's why we lost our Christian faith. But that's not what happened. And you think, how do you know that about yourself? That wealth and fame did not corrupt your heart. Every religion, every wise person who's ever spoken on this planet has said that fame and wealth can corrupt your heart. We should all think it's probably, wealth is probably corrupting all our hearts in some way that we're not aware of. We should be open to that. Why would we be so self-confident that this would not be a snare to us? You think of the comfort, the wealth, the mountain biking, the recreation, the beauty of living in a place like Bellingham. There's a temptation to say we don't need God. And so James says the rich should boast in his humiliation that he is a sinner who is worthy of God's wrath and is only saved 
by sheer grace and to know that all of his wealth will disappear like vapor. So to summarize where we are so far, we live in a culture that has devoted itself to doubt for centuries. We celebrate doubt and think it's noble and authentic, making us double-minded and unstable. And we are all individually tempted to doubt both through shame in our lives and the wealth and prosperity in our lives. And so this leads to our final question, what is the cure? And one thing I was thinking about this week as I was uh, preparing this sermon is that, you know, I've often thought that the doubt is actually one of the most important things that's helped me grow in my Christian life. A doubt shows me the areas where I don't understand God. And, and these are the places then where I need to learn and uh, learn about his mystery and his beauty. And so this passage only says that doubt is a negative thing. Is the positive understanding of doubt, is that anywhere in this passage? And I realized it's right there in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Doubting is bad, but lacking wisdom is an opportunity to experience God. Many of the things that we might call doubt is really it's a lack of wisdom. I just don't understand what God's doing. Doubt is proud. Trusting in myself. Lacking wisdom is humble and eager to hear from God how he might answer our questions. And so when we transform doubt into lacking wisdom, it becomes an opportunity to experience God more deeply. And so what's the cure to doubt? It's God himself. And there are three things we experience about God when we lack wisdom. The first, God is simple. And the word there for generously, God gives generously, it's the word simple. You know, we're divided. We have all these divided loves and all these things that we chase after. And God's not like us. His purposes are simple and unchanging. They're not unpredictable. They are reliable. And if you want to find one certain stable thing in the universe, it's not your emotions or your intuition. It's definitely not your intellect. It's definitely not the spirit of our age and our culture and all the ideas that are constantly coming out of our culture. Those will go away like the waves. They will pass away. All of these are like waves constantly shifting and changing. The one simple immovable thing is God himself and his promises. His love is steadfast. He is faithful and unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the cure to doubt is first that God is simple. Second, God is generous. Doubters want to ask questions, but they really don't want answers. And that's why James says that you won't get an answer from God if you're doubting. You didn't really want an answer. He, God resists the proud, but those who lack wisdom want answers. And uh, find that God generously gives answers. And one of the great joys of spending 20 years reading the Bible is there have been so many account. Oh, did it? Honk if you can hear me. Uh, <laughs> All right. All right. So first, so what's the cure to doubt? God is simple. Second, God is generous. Oh, we got a dead car here. Doubters want to ask questions but don't want God's answers. And, and God resists the proud. But those who lack wisdom want answers. And they find that God generously gives them. And you will find that over a lifetime of reading the Bible, you will have countless questions. You'll encounter countless things that you don't understand. Of course we don't understand God. What would we expect? 
that we would comprehend God our first time, we'll spend a, a, a eternity having God answering questions for us. And so the cure to doubt is God is simple, God is generous, but there's one last thing, is that God does not shame us. Doubters assume that God is harsh and is always judging us. But those who lack wisdom see God the way James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. He doesn't reproach us because we lack wisdom. The questions that we have, or we don't understand, or we're weak. He doesn't shame us for that. And so the cure to doubt is God's grace and kindness to the weak sinners like us. And the Bible says we must become like children to enter the kingdom of God. And children have many questions. We too will have many questions, but children also want answers. They enjoy answers and delight in answers. And so I invite you to resist the proud doubting of our age and to simply be a child who lacks wisdom so that over the years of your journey as a disciple of Jesus, you might find over and over that God gives generously without reproach to all who ask him. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, we uh, praise you that you are simple. You have clear purposes that are unchanging and so you can be our rock and you are generous in giving we acknowledge the many answers you've given to our questions throughout the years and we praise you maybe above all that you do not shame us you treat us as your beloved children we ask this in christ's name amen amen well uh, we are going to uh, respond to god's word with, with a time of prayer and uh, I'm going to invite the, the Harrises and Copelands. Are the Copelands here? Yes, Copelands to come up. So uh, today is, um, is also a, a very big day for our church. Uh, today we're sending out uh, two beloved families that are part of our community. It's, I think it's a hard day to lose the Harrises and the Copelands who are both moving to Yakima to start a new church, to start a church like Christ Church, a new community there. And uh, this is uh, their final Sunday here. They've both bought houses in Yakima. And, you know, a big tar part of the mission of Christ Church is to plant more churches. That's what God's mission that we read about in the book of Acts is that God is planting communities like ours in every nation of the world. And so it's, uh, it's also it's a hard day to see them go. It's also a day of joy and celebration. And it's too bad that we can't be at the church together and hugging them and, and you know, get, showing them our love. But it's important that we pray for them. And so I'm going to take a moment uh, uh, to pray uh, for God's blessing on their work. And uh, so thankful that God has, has called Craig to go plant this church and the Copelands uh, to go be a part of it. So would you all uh, pray with me? Mighty Father in heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you. Father, we believe that your purposes are unchanging and you will draw in those whom you have given to your Son, Jesus, from all nations. Lord Jesus, as the Father has sent you, you have sent us. We pray that many people in Yakima would come to know the forgiveness of sins, the grace that is offered them, in your gospel. Breathe 
on our brothers and sisters, your Holy Spirit, that your peace might go with them and that you might clothe them with your power. Our great God, we pray for the Harris family. We pray for Craig. May the love of Jesus and the power of the Spirit come together in perfection in his life, in his heart, in his words. May your word be his food and strength. May he rejoice above all, above success in ministry, above the effectiveness of his preaching, above the gathering of people. May he rejoice that his name is written in heaven and that he belongs to Jesus. And because of that joy, may he have power to speak words of grace to the weak and the broken and see the transformative power of the love of Christ. Equip him with all that he needs to do the work before him. We pray for Jen. May she always sense your faithful presence and the comfort of your perfect love. May she be confident that the work you have begun in her, you will see to completion. And may Craig and Jen experience even deeper unity in their marriage as they enter this mission together. We pray for Jaden and Oliver and Elliot and Hudson. May their new church home nourish their faith. Would they grow up to serve you? Surround them with friends who love them and bring them joy and empower them to welcome new friends into their new community. The peace of Christ be upon the Harris family. Our faithful Lord, we pray for the Copelands. We pray for Seth and Megan that even within their first few months in Yakima, you would make clear to them your purposes for them in this new town. May they be instruments of righteousness, useful for your kingdom. We thank you for calling them to take this risk to serve your church. May they find your blessing there, the blessing of work and family life, the blessing of friendship and community, the blessing of fruitful labor for the kingdom. May this new adventure bond their marriage in new and profound ways. We pray for Jane and Alice and Edward and Maggie. May they look back on this move and sense our God was with us. And may they learn to always have a heart to obey you and follow you wherever you might lead them. The peace of Christ be upon the Copeland family. Jesus, you said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands. Our Lord, each of these families are leaving family and homes for your sake. May these two families experience the hundredfold of your promise as they move to Yakima, and would you deepen their confidences in you as they see many hundreds of answers to prayer. But Jesus, in that verse, you go on to add, with persecutions. We are not naive to think there is no trial or hardship ahead for each of these families. They do not know what those trials will be, but you do. So may your word strengthen them. In me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Lord, grow St. Andrew's Presbyterian. May this church bring glory to your name and make disciples for generations to come. May your spirit bless this work. And we are so grateful that we get to witness your power and glory through our friends. We send them in your love. And we ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's honk and bless these families and tell them how much we love them. We're going to miss you both. Bless you. Well, it's a, uh, a joy to be gathering together that we can also partake of the Lord's Supper. And uh, as we come to the table, I just want to say a few bro- brief moments uh, or a few brief words that our, our nation is, of course, uh, facing unrest uh, after the killing of, of uh, George Floyd. And, and now we're seeing many riots in cities and as we come to the Lord's table, um, I just want to acknowledge that this table is a peaceful protest by God's people around the world. It is a protest against injustice, and it's a protest against racism. And this table is first a protest against injustice because our Lord himself was killed unjustly. Every time we come to this table, he reminds us, my body was broken, my blood was shed. And he identifies with innocent victims around the world. And, uh, and his uh, love for them and his call for justice. So we partake remembering that. It's also this meal is a protest against racism. The kingdom of God is that God gathering people from every ethnic group. Every race, every nation, every language, every tongue. And as we partake of this meal, we partake with people of all colors around the world. And even we might say we know that our own culture and within ourselves, we must face um, uh, the racism and and long to repent of, of our own racism. We see that Jesus loves all kinds of people. And people of every race are drawn and attracted to his love. And he is the one who is breaking down the dividing wall of hostility among the people groups of the world. And so we come to this table in hope of him and longing for the day when his kingdom would come and there would be peace. And so uh, we come to this table knowing that it unites not just us as a church body, but with all Christians in every nation this morning. So... Uh, if you were doing communion a little differently uh, today, uh, if you did not bring your own elements, unfortunately, we can't distribute any of the elements. But how we're going to do it is we're all going to take the bread together at the same time. I'll tell us when. And then we'll all take the wine together at the same time. So would you pray with me? Mighty Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us out of darkness that you have given us your son, Jesus. We praise you for his grace, and we long to be a people who are shaped by that grace, that though we were foreigners to you, we were strangers to you, you welcomed us. 
Give us hearts to always welcome all kinds of people into our lives, to cross bridges that would divide your image bearers in this world. And we pray that you would train us in this love by your Holy Spirit as we come to your table this morning. We thank you that we can be gathered together uh, again. And we pray that you would also end this pandemic so that we could gather every Lord's Day coming to your table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, take and eat in faith. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until his coming. Take and drink by faith. Let's pray together. Our Lord, as we receive your grace, would you make us the body of Christ, agents of love and justice in your world, of truth and grace. And may the life of Christ live in our mortal bodies as we await the day of his coming. See us through our pilgrimage. You are our food our nourishment and strength, and our lives are offered back to you for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In Christ's name, amen. I love you all.